0: Book 1, Chapter 9 of History of the Reformation in the 16th Century, Volume 1, by Jean-Henri Merle d'Aubigné, translated by Henry Beveridge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Christopher Smith. Chapter 9. The Nobles, Hüten, Letters of Some Obscure Men, Sickingen, Kronberg, Hans Sachs general fermentation the same symptoms of regeneration which we have seen among princes bishops and the learned existed among the men of the world among nobles knights and warriors the german nobility performed an important part in the reformation several of the most illustrious sons of germany entered into close alliance with the literati and, inflamed with an ardent, sometimes even an excessive zeal, laboured to deliver their countrymen from the yoke of Rome. Various causes must have contributed to procure friends for the Reformation among the ranks of the nobility. Some, by their attendance at the universities, had been warmed with the same flame that animated the learned. Others, whose education had trained them to generous feelings, had their minds predisposed in favour of the beautiful doctrines of the gospel. To several, the Reformation seemed to present something of a chivalrous character which fascinated them and bore them along in its train. Lastly, it must be acknowledged that not a few had a grudge at the clergy, who had powerfully contributed in the reign of Maximilian to deprive the nobles of their ancient independence and bring them under subjection to their sovereigns. They, in their enthusiasm, considered the Reformation as the prelude of a great political renovation they thought they saw the empire emerging from this crisis with a new splendour and hailed the better state brilliant with the purest glory which was on the eve of being established in the world by chivalrous swords not less than by the word of god Ulrich de Hütten, who, on account of his philippics against the papacy, has been surnamed the Demosthenes of Germany, forms, as it were, the link which united the Chevaliers and the Men of Letters. He distinguished himself by his writings as much as by his sword. Descended from an ancient family in Franconia, he was sent at eleven years of age to the convent of Fulda with the view of his becoming a monk. But Ulrich, who had no inclination for this state, ran off from the convent when he was sixteen and repaired to the University of Cologne, where he devoted himself to the study of languages. Afterwards, leading an unsettled life, he was in the ranks as a common soldier at the siege of Padua in 1513, saw Rome in all its disorder, and there sharpened the arrows which he afterwards shot at her. On his return to Germany, Hutton wrote a pamphlet against Rome entitled The Roman Trinity, in which he unveils all the disorders of that court and shows the necessity of pulling down her tyranny by main force. A traveller named Verdiscus, who figures prominently in the piece, says, There are three things which are usually brought back from Rome. A sore conscience, a disordered stomach, and an empty purse. There are three things which Rome does not believe, the immortality of the soul, the resurrection of the dead, and hell. There are three things in which Rome carries on a trade, the grace of Christ, ecclesiastical benefices, and women. The publication of this work obliged Hutton to quit the court of the Archbishop of Mayence, where he was residing when he composed it. The affair of Reuchlin with the Dominicans was the signal which brought forward all the literati, magistrates and nobles who were opposed to the monks. The defeat of the inquisitors, who, it was said, had only saved themselves from a regular and absolute sentence of condemnation by money and intrigue, gave encouragement to all their adversaries. Councillors of the empire and magistrates of the most considerable towns Pirckheimer of Nuremberg, Poitinger of Augsburg, Stuss of Cologne, distinguished preachers such as Capito and Echolampadius, doctors of medicine, historians, all the literati, orators and poets at the head of whom Ulrich de Hütten was conspicuous, formed the army of Reuchlinists, of whom a list was even published. The most remarkable production of this league was the famous popular satire entitled Letters of Some Obscure Men. This production was principally written by Hutton and one of his university friends, Crotus Robianus, but it is difficult to say with which of the two the idea originated, if indeed it was not with the learned printer Angst. It is even doubtful if Hutton had any hand in the first part of the work. Several humanists who had met in the fortress of Ebenburg appear to have contributed to the second part. It is a picture in bold characters, a caricature sometimes coarsely painted but full of truth and vigour, a striking likeness in colours of fire. The effect was immense. Monks, who are adversaries of Reuchlin, and the supposed authors of the letters, discourse on the affairs of the time, and on theological subjects after their own manner and in their barbarous Latin. They address to their correspondent, or to Ingratius, professor at Cologne and friend of Pfefferkorn, the silliest and most useless questions. They give the most amusing proof of the excessive ignorance and incredulity, their superstition, their low and vulgar spirit, their coarse gluttony in making a god of their belly, and at the same time their pride, their fanatical and persecuting zeal. They inform him of several of their droll adventures, their escapes, their dissoluteness, and a variety of scandals in the lives of Hochstraten, Pfefferkorn, and other leaders of their party. The tone of these letters, sometimes hypocritical and sometimes childish, gives them a very comic effect. And yet the whole is so natural that the Dominicans and Franciscans of England received the work with high approbation, believing that it really was composed on the principles of their order and in defence of it. A prior of Brabant, in his credulous simplicity, purchased a great number of copies, and presented them to the most distinguished among the Dominicans. The monks, irritated more and more, applied to the Pope for a stringent bull against all who should dare to read these epistles, but Leo X refused to grant it. They were accordingly obliged to put up with the general laugh and gulp down their rage. No work gave a stronger blow to these pillars of papism. But it was not by jesting and satire that the gospel was to triumph. Had this course been persisted in, had the reformers, instead of attacking the Reformation with the weapons of God, had recourse to the jeering spirit of the world, the course had been lost. Luther loudly condemned these satires. A friend, having sent him one of them, entitled The Tenor of the Supplication of Pasquin, he wrote in answer, The foolish things you sent me appear to be written by a mind which is under no control. I submitted them to a meeting of friends, and they have all given the same opinion. And, speaking of the same work, he writes to another of his correspondents, This supplication appears to me to be by the same hand as the letters of some obscure men. I approve of his wishes, but I approve not of his work, for he does not refrain from injury and insult. This sentence is severe, but it shows what kind of spirit was in Luther, and how superior he was to his contemporaries. It must be added, however, that he was not at all times observant of these wise maxims. Ulrich, having been obliged to renounce the protection of the Archbishop of Mayence, applied for that of Charles V, who had at this time quarrelled with the Pope, and accordingly repaired to Brussels, where Charles was holding his court but, so far from obtaining anything, he learned that the Pope had required the Emperor to send him to Rome, bound hand and foot. The Inquisitor, Hochstraten, Reutland's persecutor, was one of those whom Rome had charged to pursue him. Ulrich, indignant that such a demand should have been made to the Emperor, quitted Brabant. When, a short way from Brussels, he met Hochstraten on the high road. The Inquisitor, frightened out of his wits, falls on his knees and commends his soul to God and the saints. "'No,' said the knight, "'I will not soil my sword with such blood as yours,' and giving him several strokes with the flat of his sword, allowed him to depart. Hutton took refuge in the castle of Ebenburg, where Francis de Sekingen offered an asylum to all who were persecuted by the Ultramontanists it was here that his ardent zeal for the emancipation of his country dictated the remarkable letters which he addressed to charles v frederick elector of saxony albert archbishop of mayence and the princes and nobles and which entitled him to a place among the most distinguished authors Here, too, he composed all those works which, being read and comprehended by the people, inspired Germany with a hatred of Rome and a love of freedom. Devoted to the cause of the reformers, his object was to induce the nobility to take up arms in favour of the gospel and fall with the sword on that Rome which Luther only wished to destroy by the word and by the invincible force of truth. Still, amid all this fondness for war, we are pleased at finding tenderness and delicacy of sentiment in Houghton. On the death of his parents, though he was the eldest son, he gave up all the family property to his brothers, and prayed them not to write him or send him any money, lest, notwithstanding their innocence, they might be brought into trouble by his enemies and fall into the ditch along with him. If the truth cannot own Hutton for one of her children, for her companions are ever holiness of life and purity of heart, she will at least make honourable mention of him as one of the most redoubtable adversaries of error. A similar testimony may be borne to François de Seckingen, his illustrious friend and patron. This noble Chevalier, whom several of his contemporaries deemed worthy of the imperial crown, holds first place among the warriors who were the antagonists of rome while delighting in the noise of arms he had an ardent love of science and a high veneration for its professors when at the head of an army which threatened wurtemberg he gave orders in the event of stuttgart being taken by assault to spare the property and house of the celebrated scholar john reuchlin He afterwards invited him to his camp, and, embracing him, offered to assist him in his quarrel with the monks of Cologne. For a long time chivalry had gloried in despising literature, but this period presents us with a different spectacle. Under the massy cuirass of the Sekingens and Hütens, we perceive the intellectual movement which is beginning to be everywhere felt. The first fruits which the Reformation gives to the world are warriors enamoured with the arts of peace. Hutton, who on his return from Brussels had taken refuge in the castle of Seckingen, invited the valorous knight to study the evangelical doctrine and make him acquainted with the foundations on which it rests. And is there any one, exclaimed Seckingen in astonishment, who dares to overturn such an edifice? who could do it? Several individuals who afterwards became celebrated as reformers found an asylum in this castle, among others Martin Busser, Aquila, Schwebel, and Ecolampadius, so that Hütten justly styled Erbenburg the Hotel of the Just. Ecolampadius had to preach daily in the castle, But the warriors there assembled began to weary hearing so much of the meek virtues of Christianity, and the sermons of Ecolampadius, though he laboured to shorten them, seemed too long. They indeed repaired to the church almost every day, but for the most part only to hear the blessing and offer a short prayer. Hence Ecolampadius exclaimed, "'Alas! the word is here sown on stony ground!' Sickingen, longing to serve the cause of the truth in his own way, declared war on the Archbishop of Treves, in order, as he said, to open a door for the gospel. In vain did Luther, who had by this time appeared, endeavour to dissuade him. He attacked Treves with five thousand knights and a thousand common soldiers, but the bold Archbishop, aided by the Elector Palatine and the Landgrave of Hesse, forced him to retreat. The following spring the allied princes attacked him in his castle of Landstein. After a bloody assault, Sikingen, having been mortally wounded, was forced to surrender. The three princes accordingly make their way into the fortress, and, after searching through it, at last find the indomitable knight on his deathbed, in a subterraneous vault. "'He stretches out his hand to the Elector Palatine "'without seeming to pay any attention to the other princes "'who overwhelm him with questions and reproaches. "'Lead me at rest,' said he to them. "'I am now preparing to answer a mightier than you.' "'When Luther heard of his death, he exclaimed, "'The Lord is just, yet wonderful. "'It is not with the sword that he means to propagate the gospel.' Such was the sad end of a warrior who, as emperor or elector, might perhaps have raised Germany to high renown, but who, confined within a limited circle, wasted the great powers with which he was endowed. It was not in the tumultuous spirit of these warriors that divine truth which had come down from heaven was to take up her abode. Theirs were not the weapons by which she was to conquer, God, in annihilating the mad projects of Sekingen, gave a new illustration of the saying of Saint Paul: "The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God." Another chevalier, Harmut of Kronberg, a friend of Hutten and Sekingen, appears to have had more wisdom and more knowledge of the truth he wrote with great moderation to leo x beseeching him to give up his temporal power to its rightful possessor viz the emperor addressing his dependents like a father he endeavored to make them comprehend the doctrines of the gospel and exhorted them to faith obedience and confidence in jesus christ who added he is the sovereign lord of all He resigned a pension of two hundred ducats into the hands of the emperor, because he was unwilling, as he expressed it, to continue in the service of one who lent his ear to the enemies of truth. I have somewhere met with a beautiful saying of his, which seems to place him far above Hütten and Sekingen. The Holy Spirit, our heavenly teacher, is able, when he pleases, to teach us more of the faith of Christ in one hour than we could learn in ten years at the University of Paris. Those who look for the friends of Reformation only on the steps of thrones or in cathedrals and academies and maintain that no such friends exist among the people are under a serious mistake. God, while preparing the heart of the wise and powerful, was also preparing, in retirement, many simple and humble-minded men, who were one day to become obedient to the word. The history of the period gives evidence of the fermentation which was then going on among the humbler classes. The popular literature, previous to the Reformation, had a tendency directly opposed to the spirit which was prevalent in the church. In the Eulenspiegel, a celebrated popular poetical collection of the period, the laugh is incessantly kept up at priests, beasts and gluttons who keep full-stocked cellars, fine horses and well-lined pantries. In the Renard Reinecke, the household of priests with their little children play an important part. Another popular writer thunders with all his might against those ministers of Christ who ride splendid horses but won't fight the infidels. And John Rosenblut, in one of his carnival games, brings the Grand Turk upon the stage to preach a seasonable sermon to all the states of Christendom. It was unquestionably in the bowels of the people that the Reformation, which was soon to break out, was fermenting not only from this class were youths seen coming forth who were afterwards to occupy the first stations in the church but even individuals who continued all their lives to labor in the humblest professions contributed powerfully to the great awakening of christendom it may be proper to give some traits in the life of one of them on the 5th of november 1494 A tailor of Nuremberg by name Hans Sachs had a son born to him. The son, named Hans, John, like his father, after having received some schooling, was apprenticed to a shoemaker. Young Hans availed himself of the liberty of thought which this humble profession afforded to penetrate into the higher world in which his soul delighted songs after they ceased in the castles of chivalry seem to have sought and to have found an asylum among the burghers of the joyous cities of germany a singing school was held in the church of nuremberg the performances which took place there and in which young Hans was accustomed to join opened his heart to religious impressions and helped to awaken a taste for poetry and music The genius of the youth could not long brook confinement within the walls of his workshop. He wished to see with his own eyes that world of which he had read so much and been told so many stories by his comrades, and which his imagination peopled with wonders. In 1511 he bundles up his effects and sets out in the direction of the south. The young traveller, falling in with gay comrades, students roaming the country and many dangerous temptations, soon feels a serious struggle within. The lusts of the world and his pious resolutions war with each other. Trembling for the result, he takes flight and, in 1513, hides himself in the little town of Wels in Austria, where he lives in retirement devoting himself to the study of the fine arts. The Emperor Maximilian happens to pass through the town with a brilliant suit, and the young poet is quite fascinated with the splendour of the court. The prince receives him into his hunting train, and Hans once more forgets himself under the noisy vaults of the Palace of Innsbruck. But his conscience again sounds the alarm, and the young huntsman, immediately throwing aside his brilliant uniform, takes his departure and arrives at schwatz near Munich. There, in 1514, at the age of twenty, he composes his first hymn, In Honour of God, setting it to a remarkable air. It was received with great applause. In the course of his journeys he was witness to many sad proofs of the abuses under which religion groaned. On his return to Nuremberg, Hans commences business, marries, and becomes the father of a family. When the Reformation breaks out, he turns a listening ear. He cordially welcomes the Holy Scripture, which had already endeared itself to him as a poet, and he no longer searches it for images and hymns, but for the light of truth. To this truth he consecrates his lyre, From a humble stall in front of one of the gates of the imperial city of Nuremberg come forth notes which re-echo over Germany and everywhere excite a deep interest in the great revolution which is going forward. The spiritual songs of Hans Sachs and his Bible turned into verse greatly aided the work. Indeed, it would be difficult to say which of the two did most for it. The elector of Saxony, vicegerent of the empire, or the shoemaker of Nuremberg. Thus, then, there was something in all classes which announced a reformation. On all sides signs appeared, and events pressed forward, threatening to overthrow the work of ages of darkness, and introduce men to a period in which all things were to become new. The hierarchical form, which several ages had been employed in stamping upon the world, was on the eve of being effaced. The light which had just been discovered had, with inconceivable rapidity, introduced a number of new ideas into all countries, and all classes of society gave signs of new life. "'O age!' exclaims Hutton, "'Studies flourish and minds awake. Mere life is joy!' The human intellect, which had been slumbering for so many generations, seemed desirous by its activity to redeem the time which it had lost. To have left it in idleness without nourishment, or to have given it no better food than that which had long maintained its languid existence, would have been to mistake the nature of man. The human mind, having at length perceived what it was and what it ought to be, looked boldly at these two states, and scanned the immense abyss which lay between them. Great princes were on the throne, the ancient colossus of Rome was tottering under its own weight, and the old spirit of chivalry was taking leave of the earth to make way for a new spirit, which breathed at once on the sanctuaries of knowledge and on the dwellings of the poor. The printed word had taken wing and been carried, as the wind does certain seeds, to the most distant regions. The discovery of the two Indies had enlarged the world. Everything announced that a great revolution was at hand. But whence will the blow come which is to strike down the ancient edifice that a new edifice may arise out of its ruins? Nobody could say. Who had more wisdom than Frederick, more science than Reuchlin, more talent than Erasmus, more spirit and versatility than Hütten, more valour than Seckingen, more virtue than Kronberg? And yet, neither Frederick, nor Reuchlin, nor Erasmus, nor Sekingen, nor Hütten, nor Kronberg, learned men, princes, warriors, the church herself, had sapped some of the foundations, but there they had stopped. The powerful hand which God had designed to employ was nowhere to be seen. All, however, felt that it must soon make its appearance, while some even pretended to have seen indications of it in the stars. One class, seeing the miserable state of religion, predicted the near approach of Antichrist. Another class, on the contrary, predicted a speedy reformation. The world was waiting. Luther appeared. End of chapter nine, end of book one.